This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 1.17, Unnecessary, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and Haro set to attack mode. (laughs) And I'm Nina, Gundam noob and currently really shipping Bright and Mirai. This week we are joined by special guest Sean. Hello, Sean. Hi, and I'm Sean. I am also a longtime Gundam fan, but I don't have a good tale for that. (laughs) Um, I'm definitely part of the generation of Gundam fans that first saw Gundam Wing when it was on Toonami, and I was immediately hooked. The reason I'm here, though, is that I went to college with Tom and Nina, and when they invited me on the show, I said, heck yes. It's been a good long time that I've been arguing with Tom about Gundam since we watched Double O together in college. This week, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam episode 17, 16 in the American release, Amuro Desserts, or in Japanese, Amuro Daso, which I guess is just Amuro Desserts. They kind of give away the ending, kind of. They completely give away the ending. Yeah, I mean, this is in the fine, proud tradition of episodes like Garma's Fate. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Throughout the episode you're about to listen to, we occasionally misidentified one of the white base crew members as Sunmalo, when on rewatching we realized that it was, in fact, Omer. I've edited the podcast in order to insert Omer's name wherever Sunmalo's originally appeared. I think it's going to be seamless. We have a few special thanks this week. Thanks go out to Mark for emailing us, and to Alex and GeneratorG1 on Twitter. Thank you for your comments, and thank you for your very nice things you said about the podcast. I'd also like to take a moment to thank everyone for their Gumpla recommendations. I am now ready to find the nearest <laughs> Gumpla hobby store and make my decision. I will probably start putting together my kit in the next couple of weeks. It seems like a nice holiday activity, and you'll all see what I chose then. Before we start, a quick update on the geography. Last episode, we were at Lop Nur, we think, or Lob Lake in the Gundamverse. And this episode, as the white base continues to head towards the Caspian Sea, we are now in the Stans. So Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan are the ones most in the way between Lop Nur and the Caspian Sea. So that's the general vicinity where we are. In today's episode, we'll be talking about to rank promotion, bazookas, flight simulators, the Antarctic Treaty and Resource War. But first, the episode recap. The white base flies across the desert in a rare moment of quiet. Amro's on the bridge, entering combat data into the computer, trying to simulate Rambaral's new goof. Sela is still in the brig after stealing the Gundam in a cell neighboring the captured Kozuns. Across the desert, we get a new insight into Rawl's motivations for chasing the white base. He's after the special two-rank promotion for avenging Garma, but not for his own benefit. He cares more that the promotion will secure the futures of his subordinates and of his lover, Haman. 
As it travels, the White Base stumbles on a mine under the command of Makuve, one of Cassilia's subordinates. Bright orders Amuro to launch in the Gundam, but Amuro believes he understands tactics better than Bright. Ignoring his orders, he sorties with Hayato in the gun tank, instead of the Gundam. During the battle, Kozen escapes. He offers to break Sela out as well, but she alerts Bright and he orders her released so she can chase the escapee. Kozen finds a radio room and sends Rambaral a detailed report on the White Base's fighting strength. When the White Base's operators shut down the comm circuit, he heads for an airlock. Sela and Omer follow close behind. He locks the door and Omer, carrying a bazooka, shoulders Sela aside. He blasts the door open, knocking Kozen out into the open air. Back on the field, it appears that Amuro was correct. The gun tank's superior firepower is winning against the mine's defenses. But then, Ramba Rall and his mobile suit team arrive on the battlefield. Bright orders Kai to sortie in the gun cannon and cover the gun tank's retreat. Once Amuro launches in the Gundam, the White Base crew barely manages to avoid defeat. It is a lucky shot from the White Base's cannons that damages the Guf's joints and forces Rambaral to retreat. Bright confronts Amuro about his insubordination, but he seems unusually restrained. Amuro returns to the hangar to rethink his battle strategies. He has realized that it is Rawl's ability as a pilot, not the Guf, that he needs to study. Close to the comforting presence of the Gundam, he nods off. Bright and Mirai, in the midst of a tense discussion about Amuro, enter the hangar, unaware that the young man is sleeping nearby. In ignoring Bright's orders, Amuro endangered the rest of the crew. Mirai defends Amuro, saying that he is doing his best, but Bright remains unconvinced. Still, Bright seems unwilling to take action unless Mirai agrees with his decision. Amuro stirs, and he overhears Bright proposing to take him off of the Gundam, permanently. A moment later, we see Amuro, now dressed in his civilian clothing, carrying a bag. When Frau asks him where he is going, he declares that he is no longer necessary and runs from her. A moment later, an alarm wakes Bright in his bunk. Amuro has launched in the Gundam without permission. As the episode ends, we see only the Gundam's back receding into the distance of the night. The white base is left tiny and alone in the skies without the Gundam to protect it. doing a thing that I found very familiar, <laughs> which is running simulations, attempting to anticipate all possible outcomes, all possible things that might maybe happen and how to handle them. Because somehow, if he can just anticipate everything, then things will be okay. One of the things that struck me about that opening, um, especially with Amuro trying to just run all those simulations, was how casual he was about it. Because he just sort of was glancing up between the screen between his notes and then one-handedly typing things in. And the entire beginning of the episode is just very everyday, life routine. Things seem freakishly normal for the white base, which is a very interesting start for the episode, especially considering where it heads. It's odd that you found that to be very casual because my read on Amuro there was very tense and unhealthy, as Nina was saying, a sort of anxiety behavior. When they do that scene of him tapping the keys and looking at the screen and then back to his keyboard and back to the screen and then back to his keyboard and back to the screen and back to his keyboard and back to the screen, mm. I thought that was designed to be irritating. I found the noise irritating. And when I first watched <laughs> that, before I realized it was Amuro typing, I thought Amuro was trying to read something and he was being distracted by all the noise around in a kind of hypersensitive way, the way you get sometimes when you're very anxious and trying to concentrate on something. My read on his emotions emotional state in that scene sort of fell in between. Mm. I didn't think he seemed super relaxed, but I don't think the anxiety comes out until a bit later. But there is an air of confidence, right? Like, oh, I've made these adjustments to the simulation and I'm making these assumptions so that the simulation can run. I think that mostly comes up when Kai Yeah, exactly. Comes up to him. Kai, which 
while he is teasing Amaro, is doing it in sort of a friendly, nice way. Friendly by Kai standards. He's much less nye than he usually is, to use well, your phrase. There's I feel an, like... There's an M in there. Yeah. <laughs> I think old Kai would have been like, oh, it doesn't matter how many simulations you run, you're still going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> Uh, New Kai is like, mm, that's our Amaro. That's our boy genius. <laughs> For me, the anxiety didn't really come out until he goes and gets in the gun tank with Hayato and is saying, no, I'm sure that the gun tank is the right machine for this mission. I mm. will explain it to Bright. Then I start to feel the anxiety creeping in mm. of, no, I've, I've run all the simulations. I've thought of everything. This is definitely right. I'm absolutely in control of this situation. Right. That's really, so I read that whole thing. First, I thought that, that the tapping sound was that it was a pen, you know, that like. A nervous. Yeah, that loud tapping of the pen on the on the wood table is what it, and then when I saw it was the keyboard, it's like, okay, fine. And it just changed the scene in my head. And I thought he was very confident and maybe to the point of being overconfident and going around bright and saying, no, no, I know what's going on. I didn't get a sense of anxiety from it. I got a sense of Amaro's like, finally, like he's hit that, that sophomore point where he's like, I got this. <laughs> Um, you talked about this when we were talking about soldier psychology and the process that a person goes through when mm. they're in battle mm-hmm. and how they reach a point after a couple of weeks where they've become so overconfident and at the same time so run down that they think they're still on top of the world. Yes. And that's actually the most dangerous point. Yes. One of the things that sort of fed into the sort of the idea of confidence is part of the episode arc, right? So it, the reason that I asked us to go back and rewatch the first shot of the white base in the episode is the white base starts off very strong and very foreground in a very mm. and like you you both pointed out that it was sort of a reused animation cell with that white base moving the wrong way for the way that it was painted on the cell mm-hmm. but it's a very confident and strong position with the mm-hmm. two sort of like lion paws the four legs <laughs> like the two the two forward yeah. launch decks are like forward and strong in the shot mm-hmm. and it just comes across the center of the screen and it's very clear and the first shot that we get of Amaro is also him very strong in the center of the screen yeah. and then if you compare that to the end the last shot of the white base is tiny mm-hmm. And, and isolated and fragile looking yeah. in the top in the very top right of the frame and the last shots that we get of the Gundam are always of its back mm-hmm. so you get a very strong contrast of like they're doing training drills and things are normal to everything breaks by the end of the episode and I thought and he's sort of disappearing in the night yeah the structural mm-hmm. change that, that was there like there's that moment where it turns at the end which is beautiful yeah that's really interesting I did notice going back to those simulations and mm-hmm. my theory that it's an anxiety thing mm-hmm. every one of those simulations is a point in a previous battle where the Gundam was getting destroyed. Yes. Uh. Well, and as I was looking at that, I found myself thinking, oh, you know, this is very smart. It's actually very mature to be able to go back and look at places where you failed and try to figure out why you failed and fix it and get better. That's a very mature and sensible thing to do. But attempting to predict and account for every possible outcome is a thing anxious people do. (laughs) Right. Well, and sitting there and just going over every bad thing that happened and trying to imagine how you could have done it differently. Mm. The behavior that Amuro is performing here could be completely healthy and normal, good, or it could be a sign of his deep mental distress. And since we know that he is deeply mentally distressed, right. especially by the end of this episode, yeah. I think that's where he is here. Mm. But it's clear that the rest of the white base doesn't see him or this particular behavior that way. Except maybe high.
So a couple of things that I found very interesting about the end of the episode. <laughs> Amaro's been running around in this uniform for almost the entirety of the show, and it's only just now hitting him, oh, wait, I'm an actual soldier. I'm, <laughs> yeah. not, I'm not playing at soldier. Yeah. Oh, being a soldier means being held to military discipline. Oh, whoops. <laughs> and I think that's probably true for a lot of the crew, that because of how they wound up in this situation, they haven't really considered themselves a true part of the mm-hmm. Federation Army? I think it was last episode when they're discussing joining in Odessa Day. Mm. It's Sela who has the realization, oh, are we part of the regular army now? Right. Mm. And when Amaro deserts, not no spoilers there, the episode <laughs> title. The episode title says Amaro deserts, mm-hmm. which not only spoils the episode, it spoils like the last minute and a half of the episode. <laughs> right. Because up until that point, Amaro has not deserted. Well, it really spoils the big twist. It also makes you know, like, oh, something is going to go terribly wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because otherwise, why would he? Yeah. Something right. terrible will happen that causes this anime. thing to happen. Mm. Yeah. But back in episode four, when the White Base first got to Luna 2 and they were all arrested and threatened court-martial, what Commandant Joaquin said was that they were going to be court-martialed because they were civilians who had taken control of military equipment. Mm-hmm. And really, up until this episode, that wasn't true. They were civilians mm-hmm. working with the military, essentially operating as the military, mm-hmm. using the gun tank, the gun can, the gun tank, and the white base essentially for military purposes. Mm -hmm. And in this episode, Amuro steals the gun. There's such a weird convergence of things happening. So when he falls asleep at the computer with the Gundam behind him, Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really beautiful shot. And I think is is meant to hint to us before the big finale that Amuro has come to identify very closely with the Gundam itself. That they are, to him, sort of one entity now. It's not the Gundam, it's his Gundam. He has been complaining, almost since he got in the Gundam that they use the Gundam too much, that they depend on him too much. You know, in this episode, I thought part of why he was so insistent about taking out the gun tank was because he wanted to force people, to, to force Bright, really, to use the other mobile suits more and the Gundam less. And yet, when Bright is discussing training up other pilots, when Mirai suggests as an alternative, well, maybe we should give Amuro a rest, he freaks. And not only does he go off in a pout, he steals the Gundam. They didn't say they don't need the Gundam. And he's kind of proven, and he's proving Bright's point. Yep. Bright says, we don't have time to wait for one boy to grow up. And what does he do? He pouts and he takes his ball and goes home. <laughs> They're talking about replacing him because he failed. He really messed up and he's been trying really hard and he's exhausted. But the, the grown up reaction to that is to calm down. And if you really still want a pilot, you go and talk to them and say, absolutely train up other pilots. I really still want to be on rotation. I do want to help. I'm very sorry about this mistake I made. It won't happen again. But no. (laughs) But the Gundam isn't just a machine for Amaro. The Gundam is him. And his father. And his his mom. And so he doesn't, he can't accept the idea of somebody else piloting the Gundam. It's him. And I remember a couple of episodes ago, we were discussing something about Amaro. And you meant to say Amaro. And you said Gundam. And Mm. neither one of us noticed. (laughs) We just kept going. Well, one of his biggest complaints in some of those earlier episodes is how much they need him, right? How much they depend on him. And then his big complaint this episode is, I'm no longer necessary. 
it is an interesting change, right? That it goes from you're relying too much on the Gundam to I don't want to be cut out of this. And one of the things that really stands out to me about the opening of this episode, this is the point where Amuro starts accepting, I am a soldier. And then, of course, he questions, are we part of the regular forces? Because I think he still has the idea that we get sort of special dispensation or special permission. He's sort of starting to take his job as the pilot more seriously. There's that moment when he walks past the bathroom where Kika has flooded it because she's adorable. Um, <laughs> and he just sort of like, okay, I'll fix this. And then, of course, there's the whole thing with Mirai. But he doesn't castigate Kika. He doesn't scold her for, like, having flooded it. He's just like, Kika, where's the faucet and what have you done? <laughs> it's his job to take care of the people around him. And I think he maybe takes that a little bit seriously and very much feels like he's the only one who can. And I think that's probably what's driving a lot of his self-worth at this point, that he can do this. So like the threat of having that disappear triggers how he acts at the end. So I find myself thinking about the little refugee boy with the, mm. with the RC car. The grandfather tells us, oh, the little boy's parents are gone now. And ever since, he's been obsessing with this car. That's Amaro. His parents are yeah. gone now. Ever since he lost his father, he's been obsessed with the Gundam. Mm. And if they take that away, he has to think about That's what, what, what to doing? do with his life. <laughs> what if, yeah. if he's not the Gundam pilot, what on earth does he do <laughs> on earth? But literally. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's great. Yeah, for our new listeners, that's episode five. Go back and listen. So I thought it was very interesting that you tied the Gundam to his mother, because I don't see that at all. I see a strong tie to his father. I don't see how the Gundam connects to his mother. While the Gundam was created by Amuro's father, Amuro's driving motivations have been maternal. Amuro's got that mother complex that we keep talking about. So when I think of the thing that he goes to for comfort and mm. support, mm. it's not his dad. Right. It's the mother he's never really had. Zaku's are Amuro's trigger <laughs> and Gundam's are Amuro's comfort object. This episode feels like the beginning of a turning point for Amuro, and I think it's sort of like that false start when he's like actually hitting his stride and being a mature, young, very young adult, that he's sort of like taking responsibility for his mistakes and doing the battle simulations to figure out how he can protect these people better. And then he's trying to push Bright to be a better commander, saying Bright doesn't understand tactics properly, which is overconfidence, but he's, he's thinking about how to do this. Coming to this episode blind, Amaro is the protagonist of a giant robot show, and if we were just one step further into super robot territory, he would be able to do no wrong. He would just be the person with the robot. But because we veer a little bit further into military fiction, that gets a little bit more tenuous, and it turns out that Amaro was wrong. And then there's that moment after he gets back when Bright's, you know, telling him off for what he's done. And Amuro says, but the gun tank was better for the non-mobile emplacements. And then Bright said, but the gallop showed up. Rather than arguing, Amuro just sort of accepts it. And like, oh, that's him growing up and understanding that he's fallible. And then, of course, towards the end, when he overhears that he's going to be taken off of the Gundam and it's going to be given to Job John or Job Job John. We, we confirm Job. It's Job John. Um, or Ryu or any number of other people. Mm -hmm. That's the moment when you see he didn't actually turn that corner of maturity. I'd forgotten how this episode ends, despite the fact that I've watched it three or four times now, and I know the title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's that moment where he's just barely holding himself together. And I'm like, I really love that that sequence where he's like walking away in his civvy clothes for the first time in ages. Mm -hmm. And then Frau stops him and he's like, no, don't stop me. And then she really tries to stop him. And you just feel like the elastic stretching and then it snaps and he runs away crying. Mm -hmm. I thought the scene of him crying when he confronts Mirai and Bright was really beautifully yeah. done. Mm -hmm. They spend a lot of time just showing you his face. Right. You can hear him tear up and then it finally breaks it's like there's something he wants to say but he can't get it out
out. Yeah, I was slightly frustrated <laughs> when he took off with Hayato in the gun tank mm. because we've seen in previous episodes points when he disagreed with Bright, when he talked to Bright about it sensibly, and Bright did say, oh, no, you're right, let's do that instead. We've seen that happen. We know it's possible. Amuro, theoretically, knows that it's possible. And instead, he's trying to do everything on his own. Mm. Yeah, totally. It's very much a story of, oh, it looks like he's grown up, but he absolutely hasn't. I made sketches of those shots at the <laughs> end of that of that shot where Amuro is falling asleep on the chair with the Gundam head right just behind, behind him. him. Mm-hmm. Within, within sort of Western iconography, it's almost like the aura around a saint's head. The halo. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if there's any... If there's Tatakai any... no nanyoi. <laughs> Translate, please. <laughs> uh, it's a phrase that got used in Kukuru Zudon's island. Okay. Uh, and it means like the aura of battle. Okay. Yeah. Scent battle. Yeah. And it totally does frame Amuro and the Gundam as the same. And then there's that moment when he overhears and the camera pulls back and it's just a tiny little Amuro in the left of the screen and it's beautiful. And then, of course, we get that shot uh, of the white base just isolated off on the screen after mm-hmm. Amuro's left with the Gundam. Mm-hmm. The, cinema, the cinematography is that, I don't know if that, or the animation, the framing of the animation. Cinematography. Yeah. yeah. The cinematography is really, like, even though they were using a lot of, of animation, <laughs> they do a good job of, like, structuring it in such a way that, like, as a whole, the episode tells a cohesive visual story and, like, takes you on a journey from strong and foregrounded to isolated and fragile. Let's talk about Bright next. Okay. Well, Bright and Mirai are kind of a package deal at this point. Yes. But Bright can't get no respect. Twice in this episode. <laughs> First, from the Xeon soldier, mm-hmm. the Ensign Kozen, mm-hmm. who doesn't believe that Bright is actually the commanding officer of the White Base. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then second, from Amaro, mm-hmm. who won't listen to his orders and won't even discuss his plans with Bright. So in Kozen's defense, Bright's 19. I would be surprised if I met a 19-year-old commander of a carrier. Well, and Kozen is... I'm not saying Kozen is acting relatively, <laughs> relatively seasoned veteran surrounded by teens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this his first line in this episode is when Mirai walks in and he goes, oh, another underaged female officer. He's not wrong about the age part. No. He's really not. I love Bright and Mirai. Uh, that relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because especially towards the end, when we see the two of them having that conversation about Amuro and the Gundam, we get this sense that Mirai is the one person Bright doesn't have to pull rank on. <laughs> yeah. There's that moment when he says, I want you to agree with me. Right. But yeah. he doesn't, like, he doesn't force it. He right. really values her perspective and, and opinion on things. Right. And, and we- wants them to be in sync. She's his first lieutenant, so to speak. I'm thinking of sort of nautical terms. If he mm-hmm. were the captain, she'd be the first lieutenant. They really respect each other. She's maybe the only person who checks on him Mm. and makes sure that he's okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which we see time and again, and she's the one person he feels close to, and they can sort of gently disagree with each other. Like when she points out to him, you know, I really think Amuro is doing his best, and his response, which I think is very natural for someone who signed up for military life and accepts its realities, if I accept that this is the best he can do, we all die. And he's probably right. Yeah. I really loved that I want you to agree with me line and the fact that he tries to put a hand on her shoulder and she turns away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So intimate. Yeah. And in that I want you to agree with me line, there's a sense of like, I want to convince you or maybe I'll change my mind. I want us to come to Mm. the same position. See, I got a different sense from that. Sort of with the touch, it felt like, like there's this thing between us and I don't want us to disagree on something really important. Let's not fight in front of the kids. Oh, whoops, there's a kid. 
did. <laughs> like, I, I want us to be a unified front. I don't want to have this disagreement between us because we have this lovely thing mm-hmm. developing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unrelated to the relationship. But once again, I really appreciate that the animators put so much effort into making Mirai's attitude, like the way she carries herself in her body, just non-military, but like she's very much an individual. There's that moment early on when she's leaning against the wheel of the white base and biting her thumbnail. Mm-hmm. It's a couple episodes we, previous. We talk about this a bunch. There's one where she's gnawing on a radio antenna yeah. or the straw of a juice box. They gave her a lot of cool physical ticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in this one, when she's having this conversation with Bright, he's sort of standing hands on the rail overlooking overlooking the mobile suit deck. And then she's just sort of like bent over at the waist, like where their elbows on that rail. Right. Leaning onto the railing. And it's such an immediately recognizable way of like staring off into space at nothing and thinking about things. It's just like, I really appreciate that the animators do that. Mirai tries to go comfort Amuro Mm. after he overhears their conversation and Bright stops her, which was maybe not the right move. (laughs) But I don't know that Mirai comforting Amuro could have talked him down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But her immediate response, she's just been saying, I think he's trying his best. I think he's special. He needs rest, but I think we should keep him doing this. And he's clearly distraught and he runs away. And her immediate reaction is, oh, I need to go check on him. She very much takes his side a lot of the time. Every woman in the show mothers him so and so this is ship mom and ship dad yeah. yeah ship mom wants to comfort him and ship dad's like no he needs discipline he needs to grow strong oh bright bright's well, not wrong bright no, also not. is not wrong either but bright may yeah. also just be thinking you know it's always hard for us to process how other people feel things mm. we think of things the way we feel them and so bright from his own perspective might be thinking well of course he's upset but he'll calm down in a little while and we'll work something out which is not what happens <laughs> <laughs> but it's not an unreasonable expectation. Yeah, it's clear that Bright doesn't have any idea that Amuro is going to desert. Certainly doesn't think Amuro is going to steal the Gundam and desert. No. Bright goes to sleep. He doesn't post guards. <laughs> He's com- caught completely unawares when Amuro does, in fact, steal the Gundam and disappear into the night. Yeah. One other thing about Bright that I noticed that's different in this episode than it has been in the past. Bright, in, in the first few episodes, was very quick to just smack Amuro around when he was doing dumb things. And in this episode, he tells him what he's done wrong, mm-hmm. but he doesn't backhand him like he's done in the past. And so, he's very gentle with it and still very firm. I can't help but wonder if this is because things are more formalized now. Mm. Because because actual formal discipline for what Amuro has done would probably have been quite severe. Yeah. That's the kind of thing people would get, like, caned for, <laughs> or lashes for, or thrown in the brig for a couple yeah. days, or, you know, and right. they did it to yeah. Sela. When Sela stole the Gundam, yeah, well, well she didn't even steal it. When Sela took the Gundam out into combat without orders, she got three days of brig, and that was a light punishment. Right. And they only really let her out because they needed help capturing the prisoner. She might still be in there otherwise. So I did wonder, as Bright is talking about military discipline and you can't do this stuff anymore to Amuro, if in the back of Bright's mind he's thinking, you do. Hmm. (laughs) Like, the things that I have to do to you, because it's the rules, are really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So on that, do we want to move on to Sela and Kozun? Yeah. Throughout the episode, we get this running story about Kozen Graham, the Xeon pilot who was captured in the previous episode, and his attempt to escape from the white base, and Sela's attempt to stop him from doing so. So with the attack, Sela's the only one available to try to stop the escapee. For someone who seems very comfortable holding a gun, she's very hesitant to fire a gun. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Based on what we know about Sailor's character, I really would have expected her to gun him down a lot quicker. She had several opportunities. They weren't good opportunities. I do think those scenes were set up to make it difficult for Sailor to fire. They're not emotionally difficult, but physically difficult. I loved the scramble for the gun. Oh, when yeah. When she first pulls it on Cozen and he knocks it out of her hands and the two of them are just kind of shouldering each other out of the way, kicking the gun out of the way, trying to get at it. When he goes for it, you can see in his face there's a lot of confidence, like, oh, this tiny woman dropped her gun. I'm going to take it and then I'm going to mm-hmm. really get out of here. Yeah. And she just shoulder checks him out of the way. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. What I loved about that scene is that a lot of fighting in animated shows feels very showy. Mm. Feels like a kung fu movie or you know very dramatic, very unreal. That felt super real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's really good visual storytelling. Um, I used to do a lot of stage combat and fight choreography, and that's just it's such clear like storytelling. He kicks the or kicks the gun or knocks it out of her hand. Of, knocks it out of her. He hand. knocks it out of her hand first, but at, at one point one of them kicks it yeah, away from I the think other. Yeah, kicks it, and it's just such good what uh, backwards and forward shots uh, mm-hmm. of, on what's happening and it just tells such a clear scrappy story I wrote down things about that scene too because it's just really well done well and you can see how his motivations first he's surprised he wasn't expecting her to be there yeah. he just bumps <laughs> he, into her he wasn't expecting her <laughs> to try to stop him he yeah. thought she yeah. was a Xeon he wants the gun he goes for the gun but when he can't get the gun immediately he switches back to his original objective which is get out of there Yeah, and he runs for it Sailor goes after the gun again it's, it's real good yeah I I, I did think it sort of betrayed the lack of experience of our crew that the first thing that they do when they find out a prisoner has escaped and maybe and they probably don't have enough people to do this anyway but they don't cover all the exits they don't cut communications they send one person to chase him yep. <laughs> like no the first thing you do is you make sure he can't get away yeah. and can't contact anyone then you find him finding him is actually like secondary or tertiary importance where can he go if you've locked down the exits mm-hmm. but they're young and they kind of have a lot going on. Yep, yep. There's a moment when Ryu is like, oh, I'm going to send Sela to get him because I need to go out in the, one of the core fighters. And Bright doesn't actually throw up his hands, but the way he's speaking, I just imagine him throwing up his hands and going, okay, fine, whatever. I have to deal with this other combat right now. Yeah. <laughs> I can't handle all of this. And they haven't had to deal with this before. Mm-mm. Our crew of civilians has gotten pretty good at dealing with the things that they've had uh, to deal with. They're not civilians anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Kika, Katz, and Let's are, please. Oh. Okay. And Frau? Mm-hmm. Kika Cats and Let's became combatants in this episode. That's, That's true. true. Not for nothing, uh, old school navies, like uh, from sort of the golden age of the English Navy, you'd send kids to sea at six and seven. Golden. It's it's the term people use to describe it. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it was all that great, although it produced some of my favorite fiction. Fair. <laughs> well, fiction about it, not written during that time. I'm a big fan of the Horatio Hornblower books. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. Point being, <laughs> the orphans, the orphans, and Haro became combatants in this episode. So they are fully into the crew of the White Base. I vote Haro as MVP. <laughs> yep, Haro did more to stop that guy's escape than anybody else. So our crew of former civilians <laughs> have not ever had to deal with this before. They've gotten pretty good at things they have to do on a regular basis. But when it comes to fighting enemies who are inside the white base, nobody has any experience with that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the outcome of this is that their fighting strength in exact numbers is leaked to Rambaral. The white base is now noticeably compromised. And I was a little bit surprised that it didn't come home to roost as much as I thought it might. By the end of this episode, I thought that, that Rambaral having that information might have created a bigger problem for the white base in in that battle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering what happens with that going forward. You don't remember. Or I'm posing a (laughs) Socratic question. (laughs) 
I, it's a good question. Um, I was expecting the battle to go more poorly when the, I don't know what position it is on the bridge, but the people who are watching all the radar mm-hmm. and uh, identifying where the ships the are. The operators. And seeing that, oh, well, they're spread out in a circle around us. What I expected was that Rumble was trying to draw everyone to him and then the, the ones on the sides could pincer mm. or even come like surround mm-hmm. and prevent them easily getting away. It didn't work out that way. Rambaral blames it on the lack of ground support. But I also think Rambaral is cautious. We've seen this again and again. Mm-hmm. Rambaral really doesn't like to risk his men if he doesn't feel like they have an absolutely great chance of winning. He cares a lot about the people he commands yeah. and does not want to take any unnecessary risk. So when the tides of battle change, they no longer have the ground support. The dops have been taken out. It's like, all right, time to reassess. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes, I'd forgotten that this episode is the episode where I fall in love with Ramba Ral or the Daruji-san, like Uncle Ramba. He's, he's <laughs> the best. It's the moment where you really see how deeply he cares about his people. And like when Hammond asks him, why did you accept this mission? And he says, well, I get the two special two rank promotion, but that's that's really for my people. Right. That and secures the jobs of all of my people. Yeah. Right. And it's it's that moment where I'm like, oh, right. This guy is the best. Well, it ties back into our earlier observations about uh, Hamon, Hamon, <laughs> Hammond <laughs> being more politically inclined mm. because that would be why she would want to be able to rub shoulders with the zombies. Like she wants access to the people in charge. That's important to her. And Ramaral is willing to do things to help her achieve that. Yeah. Even though he himself is just a professional soldier who wants to do well by his men. Right. At this point in the recording, Tom and Sean discussed Gundam The Origin and the Gundam novelizations, which was very inconsiderate to Gundam noobs like myself. It has been cut to save us all from spoilers. Anyway, we were talking about Cousin's escape before. Mm. I had a brief moment of panic. Uh, Cousin makes it to an airlock. For some reason, there's a little jetpack in there. One of, it looked like one of the jetpacks we saw them use previously. Which we know have incredible power. Yeah. Yes, we know they are very strong and very good. And Salem starts firing at the door. I feel like this is this is like a guns in enclosed spaces 101. You're more likely to get harmed by ricochet or to break something like something important, like a gas or electrical line firing a gun. <laughs> Sayla doesn't care. Sturdy metal door. <laughs> and then Sayla she... doesn't care about her own physical safety. Also, well, Sayla's too the, strong. What about the safety of the ship and everybody in it? See earlier comment. <laughs> Sayla doesn't care. And then that Yehu with the bazooka. I think that was Homer. Well, might have been. He's an idiot. I. <laughs> yeah. I was expecting a horrifying explosion in the hall and then the door to be fine when that happened. Yeah, if you don't know what happens when you fire a bazooka in in an enclosed space, it is not that. (laughs) It is not that you blow the door down, killing the guy on the other side. Well, it is not that you blow the the door down, destroying the jetpack of the guy on the other side. Yeah, he sort of gets blasted out the side of the white base. And I think we see a shot of the jetpack wrecked. Oh, I read the whole thing as he gets away and they think he's dead, but he's fine. Yeah, I thought so too. Mm-hmm. I thought they mostly just helped him. I was like, well, that's irony. It would also be very like them to assume that they had killed him mm. without confirming. I mean, in this weird world where bazookas fired at doors, just blow the door the way you want it to. Future bazookas. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it seems reasonable that that also would have killed him, except the door on the other side was opening, just went out of it. It was fine, but 
physics, man. This is a section where <laughs> we can't rely on the physics. Yeah. Clearly he's dead or not according to what the story requires and not what would have actually happened in that situation. Mm. Because actually in that situation, Sela and Omer would both be dead yep. and he would probably be fine. Yeah. Uh, well, Sela showing a certain amount of Sangfroid. It's like, oh, it would have been him or us. Don't feel bad. Sela doesn't care. She's too strong to care. She cares about Char, though. Char Nisan. <laughs> So Sean mentioned earlier the scene where Kika is trying to do laundry and <laughs> floods the room and Amuro has to come in and try to fix it. And it's a decently long scene in the early part of the episode, which doesn't connect to much else that's happening. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was a really lovely look at what life is like on board. Because mm. first you have Kika and the other orphans by proxy who can't fight, obviously. So they're doing the only things they can do to help. They're they're runners. They're taking messages and deliveries around the ship. They're trying to do laundry. They're cleaning the bridge. You know, they they also want to feel useful. They also want to feel important. And sometimes in doing so, they make mistakes. They're noisy on the bridge and yeah. distract Bright. Or they break faucet. Or, you know, they are also making mistakes in the process of trying to be essential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have Amro running into the laundry line and the bra. And being Which a little, like, oh, God. <laughs> What is, oh no. <laughs> Kika, isn't Mirai in there with you? Maybe she can fix it. And Mirai runs out. And because Japan, we see topless Mirai. That is much less weird there than it would be in American animation. And then she notices Amaro and is like, what? Oops. Amaro, nope. <laughs> can you fix it? It looks like Mirai was maybe in the middle of her bath mm-hmm. and then heard Kika yelling. And you have to think, and this is maybe something to ask a friend of ours who's lived on an aircraft carrier about, that kind of thing must happen all the time if you're a like, co-ed crew mm. <laughs> on a ship. Mm-hmm. You must accidentally walk in on people in various states of dress and undress all the time. I imagine eventually you get over it. <laughs> And for all that Amuro and Mirai are clearly somewhat embarrassed, they don't make a big thing of it. Right. Mm. This is not a scene that has any overtones of lechery. Or titillation. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not meant to be titillated by Mirai poking out the door topless. Like, we're just like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How embarrassing for everyone. And in a meta kind of way, I thought it was really interesting that the first fan service we've gotten, if we want to call this fan service. Char in the shower. Right. Yes. Char, Char in the shower. That's the fan service. Char in the shower is the first real fan service. The second one, this scene, because like the bath scene, it's traditionally a subset of fan service. Like this is at least bordering fan service. I don't think it is. I'm, I'm trying to like get yeah, okay. to that point. You're both giving me faces. Yep. <laughs> um, that the first scene in the show where we get a female member of the crew in a state of undress is Mirai, who of the three main female characters is the least viewed as a like sex symbol mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Japan in the Gundam fandom. Like Fraubo and Sela have their dedicated fandom. Ride or die. Exactly. <laughs> Proto waifus. With- <laughs> well, Mirai has drawn a little heavier mm-hmm. and a little older. Mm-hmm. Just gonna, by a little older, we mean like two years again because everyone's right. like 19 yeah. and under, but yeah. Well, and the show actually has a pattern of taking these scenes that in other anime would be romantic or titillating and making mm-hmm. them not. Like when Frabo and Amaro fall on top of each other yeah. in that yeah. turbulence. Normally that would be like a hand on a boob or, oh, 
both blushing. We're so embarrassed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of you is on top of the other. And instead, it's very matter of fact. And yeah. they brush themselves off and they get up and it's not weird. And this is another one. If this were a different show. Yeah. Yeah. And Most we get is that Amaro blushes a little bit. And yeah. covers his eyes. His yeah. sort of <laughs> Which seems like a reasonable response, right? The f- scene isn't isn't sort of animated in the way that you expect from that scene in a fan service situation. Because mm-hmm. in fan service, you get like probably the highest animation budget for that episode. <laughs> the angles and the cinematography are much more... Um, objectifying of, mm-hmm. of the subject yeah mm-hmm. and like they get a lot closer and you don't get the outline through the shower door like you get none of the none of the bs that you would normally get from that scene if it was fan service and it right. feels it does feel more slice of life than like ooh, mirai yeah absolutely <laughs> which is a good connection back to that char scene which oh. actually does feel kind oh. of erotic oh, it's still is. my heart <laughs> it absolutely is at this point, what do you think after the shower scene? What is the next sexiest scene in Gundam? Uh, probably Mirai going to Bright's cabin and he's got his like shirt open. Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that one's hot from like the tension, not from hot from the animation. I don't know the way Bright is like lounging and he's and, like and actually smiling. We almost never see him smile and he looks like relaxed and smiling. And then undoing mm. the button on his coat when Mirai walks in, <laughs> not before. Yeah, you know. So jumping back to the to the interrogation scene really quick when Mirai just poked her head into the interrogation room mm-hmm. and Bright was, I don't know, Cousin was saying whatever and Bright was saying whatever. That felt like the most intimate scene in a while because it's just the two of them just immediately connect mm-hmm. regardless of the other people in that interrogation right. all those yeah. other people in the yeah. room. <laughs> but the two of them, she's just checking in on Bright and for a second I was like, oh, she's going to Bright's chambers. Yeah, right. because that's how it's shot. Yeah. It's her face coming through the door. We don't know what's when going she on says, on the other oh, side. how's yeah. it going? And it's only after she said that in a very intimate kind of way that it switches and we see the interrogation yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah. I thought we were going to get some more explicit information about their relationship because mm. she's just said she's going to go rest, right? Like yeah. This is, and then she goes to see and Bright. And then she goes straight to Bright's room. So. Yeah. <laughs> or we think it's Bright's room. Right. She goes straight to Bright. Right. Whatever yeah. room he's in. <laughs> he's the commanding officer of the White Base. Whatever room he's in is his room. <laughs> <laughs> I think number three is the full body pan of Matilda. Yeah, probably. Oh, man. That Although, one's fan servicey. That's the most lecherous shot. Yeah. Although, as I point out in that scene, her body in that uniform doesn't look that different than, say, Bright's body in that uniform. Mm. True. There, There's a, a sort of hint of boob, <laughs> but it's not, it's not exaggerated or sort of unreal in a yeah. way that you mm-hmm. would see in something more fan servicey. Right. I mean, like, uniform shirts don't cup the boob that way. Nope. <laughs> Interestingly, that's scene gets preserved almost exactly when it shows up in the novelization. And it's exactly what you said. She's wearing a uniform and she's got her hair cut short. She's not like super sexy Matilda Shoy, but also they make it a point that Amuro's like, dang, oh, yeah. she's fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and that scene has to be lecherous because in that moment, Amuro is like, whoa, whoa. hearts yeah. in the eyes, yeah. right? The scent of a woman. Oh, oh my God. They spend so much time talking about that. I also wonder a little if that's not a translational issue. Mm. Uh, I talked about this a little bit in a previous episode episode, but how some of the Japanese words for smell can also mean sort of aura, sense uh, around someone. And so I would need to go back and check the specific word that they use yeah. in reference to Matilda, but the sense might be more of, of womanliness, of like a, an adult woman, uh, as opposed to a girl. This implied sort of sexual maturity. Yeah. Right. And power. Yes. Because Matilda is attractive in those shots. She's also powerful. Mm, she commands everyone around her. Um, but the, the 
other thing that I just wanted to point out, the thing that you, Nina, picked up on in, the, in that in that shot, that she's sort of like, it's that contradiction of the body pan with the military uniform mm-hmm. sort of undercutting it. it. I found it quite cool that that pops up again in the way that Tomino writes it. So that was a good eye on that. <laughs> he likes his contradictions. Mm. Well, it means we know that he had control of that scene in the show yeah. and knew exactly how he wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of exposure to flight simulators in this episode, both the tactical simulation that Amaro uses to analyze his previous combats, as well as toward the end of the episode, mentions of how much simulator time various other characters have gotten in preparation for perhaps piloting the Gundam. When we know Sela in the last episode had been doing some surreptitious simulator time in order to get ready for her sortie. The use of computers for flight simulation began in the 1960s, but first came to personal computers in 1975 when a grad student named Bruce Artwick created one for his thesis project. It was written in Fortran for the Apple II. We had an Apple II when I was growing up. So did we. (laughs) If you've been trying to guess how old we are, that probably helps. (laughs) The first consumer version wasn't released until the early 1980s. Mind you, there were physical simulators available as early as the 1910s, First, controlled manually by an operator, so like half a barrel that a pilot sat in, and it was on a frame, and people moved the frame (laughs) around. (laughs) Sorry, does that mean that there were technicians who could legitimately say, my job is to be an aircraft simulator? Yes. Big, strong Navy men (laughs) who shake the barrel really hard. Well, so remember, early simulators weren't used by military pilots. Early simulators were used by hobbyists and commercial pilots Ah. more than by military pilots. I'm sure there was some use, but it wasn't widespread and it wasn't a standard part of training. So you'd you'd have early pilots going to the local strongman gym and finding the (laughs) biggest guys they could (laughs) and saying, I need somebody to come home and shake my barrel for me. Sure. That's that's exactly how it worked. It must have happened at least once. In the late 1920s, they developed mechanical simulators uh, where a pneumatic motion platform provided pitch and roll cues and a vacuum motor rotated the platform providing yaw cues. Sounds like a mechanical bowl. Uh, yeah, more or less. And then there would be instruments inside the cockpit that the pilot was sitting in, and they would have to make sure to align their instruments correctly based on the pitch, roll, and yaw. These physical simulators, with some additional developments over time, were used through World War II. As I said before, in the 1960s, they started incorporating computers. The earliest computer-generated visuals were just points of light on a black background, (laughs) which I laughed at when I first read it, though the article I read was quick to point out for night flying, that is more than sufficient. The big breakthrough in using computers for real-time simulation was a technological one, using three parallel processors and a drum memory (laughs) to handle the amount of computing power you needed to run the simulations. Uh, This is back when computers took up whole rooms. Most current flight simulators for commercial or armed forces pilots combine some kind of physical feedback with computer-run visuals and controls. However, there's a good deal of debate as to whether physical feedback systems are necessary for training fighter pilots. Because the planes are so maneuverable and because of the way that their instruments work, fighter pilots don't necessarily need that physical feedback. Uh, 
Which is all to say, there was a lot of new technology around this at the time that Mobile Suit Gundam was being made, uh, including <laughs> flight simulators that you could play at home if you had a personal computer at home. It would have been on the cutting edge for technology of the time. And so makes sense that they would include in the show that there are computers on board the white base that can handle simulations for new pilots. Yeah, in that first episode when Ryu proudly announces that he's had two whole hours of simulator time, my initial reaction is like, oh, that's nothing and actually not very impressive at all. But to a 1979 audience, that would have been like, whoa, a simulator. Yes. I don't remember the precise details, but in one of the articles I was reading, one of the early computational restraints was the amount of time that you could run the program. (laughs) (laughs) And then some of the early simulators, you could only get 10 to 12 hours of runtime. So two hours of simulator time is a 20% of the simulator time for the day among a whole flight school. So that would be a big deal until they figured out parallel processing. So in this episode, we got some additional information about Rambo-Roll's motivations for hunting down the white base and avenging Garma. And part of that is that he just wants to do the Zabi family a solid. But a big part of it is that he's trying to get a special two-rank promotion, which is the special reward offered to whoever hunts down and destroys the white base and the Gundam. I did some research into the ranks of the Xeon army, which for some reason parallel perfectly the (laughs) ranks of the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy before and during World War II. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. I don't know why this keeps happening. It's yeah, there, no one can answer that question, I'm sure. And this brought me straight into one of the interesting translation decisions that was made for the English dub and sub back when it was initially translated. And that is that they chose to use Imperial Japanese Navy ranks for all of the Xeon officers, even though the Japanese words being used are for the Imperial Japanese Army. And I can understand why this was done. The difference is actually very, very subtle. It's a difference in pronunciation of two of the words in two of the ranks. Other than that, it's basically identical. Mm. And when we think of spacefaring battleships, carriers, fighters, we do think naval forces, not army forces. So I can understand why they made this translation, even if it's not strictly correct. And at this point, things like Lieutenant Commander Shar and Vice Admiral Dozel are so deeply embedded in the Gundam lore and in the fandom's collective memory that trying to change it to be Major Shar or <laughs> Lieutenant General Dozel just would not feel right. So Rambo Rall is a Tai, Rall Tai, which is equivalent to an army captain or a navy lieutenant. He's one rank below Shosa, which is Shar's rank, lieutenant commander. A two-rank promotion would make him a commander, Shusa, or a lieutenant colonel in the army. Is that before or after Shar got demoted? Before. Okay. Mm. How common is this special two-rank promotion? It gets referenced in Gundam a lot, <laughs> but in the real world, it doesn't seem to have been a thing. There is actually a close parallel in the air war of World War one where German army propagandists spread rumors that the British were so afraid of the Red Baron that they were offering the Victoria Cross, Britain's highest military honor, to anyone who could shoot him down. This wasn't true, but that is the closest to this special two-rank promotion for taking down a particular soldier that I've been able to find. Oh man, England just obsessed with the Victorian era. (laughs) We don't talk about that. (laughs) You know know what? Sean lives in England. So in addition to the Victoria Cross being the highest military honor, the Albert Cross is another very high honor. Uh, 
So even if he does get that two rank promotion, Rambaral would still be below all of the Zabis. Giran is an Admiral or Tai Shou. Dozel is a Vice Admiral or Chu Zhou. Kaecilia is a Rear Admiral or Shou Shou. And Garma was a Taisa or Captain. McVeigh is also a Taisa. So he would still be ranking below McVeigh. 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 In this episode, we've heard a little bit more about the Antarctic Treaty, um, which we haven't had really explained in any detail in the show. Um, so I did some digging on this, and I had to dodge some Gundam the Origin mines and <laughs> things that are, you know, super spoilery. But this is the this origin. is the <laughs> well, and then and then Tom had to check the text again for spoilers. Yeah, we went I, through a couple of rounds of this. Yep, it's been edited once or twice at least. Here's the basics of the of the Antarctic Treaty. It was signed on January 31st, UC 0079, which is 28 days after the war began, and it sets the rules of engagement for the two sides in the war, Zeon and the Federation. And after that, we don't really hear all that much about it. It gets referenced and name-checked here and there. It does do some sort of narrative work and sets up sort of the structure of the show. Um, like the all-important Minovsky particle, it's one of the things that forces the war uh, into the mobile suit field rather than using big bad bombs. One of the most important things that it does is it tells us, the audience, how devastating the beginning of the war was by what the treaty prohibits. It prohibits the use of NBC weapons, which are nuclear, biological, and chemical. It prohibits any attacks on colonies. Uh, it prohibits orbital bombardments of Earth, so large things like colonies or asteroids or even ships being dropped on the planet or falling to the planet. It sets out rules for the treatment of prisoners. It requires that both sides respect declarations of neutrality by states other than Xeon and the Federation, which includes Side 6, which is still around, and Side 7, which got attacked. And it also provides for protection of the Helium-3 transport fleet, uh, which we haven't seen much of, but will turn into a thing in a bit. It seems like any sci-fi war story that was written after, say, 1946 has to answer the question of, well, why don't they just nuke everything? Yep. And this is one of the ways that Gundam answers that. They don't nuke everything because they agreed not to. Well, I mean, how else are we going to get our sweet, sweet mobile suit action, right? Like most agreements like the Geneva Convention and the less military-focused ones like the Civil Rights Act, affirmative, affirmative action, uh, legal union agreements. We can learn a lot about what has happened before by looking at what that agreement says the rules are going forward. We already know that a colony fell onto the earth, and while the effects of this aren't really pointed out in the show, we have seen it a couple of times already with the desertification of North America and all of the craters that we saw as they were crossing the southwest and crossing across the continent. The prohibitions of NBC weapons and orbital drops, I think, tell us a lot about the psychology of the characters in the show. We already know that half the human population was lost before the treaty was signed, presumably to the use of these kinds of weapons or attacks. And in 28 days, in 28 days. Yeah, uh, that's kind of dark. <laughs> just kind of. Just kind of. Just a little bit dark. Yeah. So when you think about the kinds of environments that people lived in, the sealed colonies, which have recycled air, or a planet that's already sort of climatically falling apart because of its resource depletion climate change, uh, the treaty's prohibitions take on a darker tone. Um, it's not just sort of an agreement to fight nice, a gentle, gentle person's agreement. It becomes a matter of life and death for everyone. When you think about it in those terms and you think about, well, why would people in colonies be so concerned about nuclear, chemical and biological weapons? And then you realize, oh, right, they're in these incredibly fragile environments surrounded by the endless void of space. Perfectly balanced environments. With, you know, perfectly sealed. They can't really get out. Anything that gets in there is just stuck in there forever. And you can't get more air. You have to go to Earth to get more air. Right. But then once you start thinking in those terms, you think a little bit more expansively and you realize, wait, Earth is that too. Earth is bigger. The scale is bigger. But Earth is 
is also a closed system. Yeah, Earth yeah. is also a closed system, very fragile, surrounded by the endless void of space. Is already had a colony drop on it and destroy most of. Well, I'm not even thinking in the Gundam world. I'm thinking like what Tomino was trying to say about our world. Yeah, and how when you set off a nuclear bomb here, when you release a biological weapon or a chemical weapon, those don't go away. They might get dispersed, but they're still in the system. Yeah, right. Well, uh, and the, and they affect even the people who use them. There's no way to use that in a way that will only hurt your enemies as as recent nuclear disasters can attest mm-hmm. you know there were irradiated fish off the coast of california after the nuclear reactors uh, melted down in japan for instance if you want more information about that we talked about the fukushima nuclear disasters back in episode five and this is something that i that i was sort of thinking about as i was going into this too before we had this this discussion i i sort of read gundam as much as an eco tragedy as it is a war tragedy because tomino does sort of drop these things in here and there and you have to do a little bit, bit of work to pick it up at the beginning i think it's one of those things that like a lot of the story elements in gundam becomes more obvious over time yeah and it's like tomino is sitting there saying like why don't you get it why don't you get it yet i'm saying it i've said it so many times and yet you you won't listen. Yeah. This war that we're looking at between Xeon and the Federation, some of the precipitating factors are that there's been an effectively a class divide in humanity between the people who got to stay on Earth and the people who were forcibly moved to the colonies in the migration program. So there's that. And it's because the planet couldn't really sustain the species anymore. They seem to pay a lot of attention to sort of the environmental and ecological impact that warfare has on the environments in which humans live. And the Antarctic Treaty is one of the ways they foreground this. No spoilers, but failing ecologies, I think, as as Tom has sort of alluded, to is a thing that's going to keep coming back again and again and again. All of that said, the treaty also serves sort of an in-universe strategic goals for both sides uh, beyond just sort of protection against annihilation. According to the Encyclopedia Gundam officials, which I'm referencing secondhand because it's in Japanese and I don't have a copy, um, motivations... Don't let the name fool you. I think it's only semi-official. That, yeah, as with most (laughs) material that wasn't written by Tomino and even some stuff that was written by Tomino. (laughs) Tomino! Uh, (laughs) No! Um, Motivations for the Federation to sign the treaty include uh, sort of a desire to force Xeon into a longer war. Federation needed time to catch up on its mobile suit program, and maybe more importantly, they had access to a lot more material material resources than Xeon does. Longer conflict sort of privileges them and advantages them significantly once they can ramp up mobile suit and warship production. Same applies for Xeon, though. Uh, the same encyclopedia notes that Xeon signed the treaty to protect themselves from the Federation's nuclear arsenal, which, even if it's not being used on a colony, can do a whole lot of damage to a fleet of ships. In addition to protecting the colonies and the fleet from NBC weapons, keeping the conflict restricted to more conventional warfare gives Xeon a big tactical advantage. Federation had yet, at the time that the treaty was signed, to develop anything that could match the Zaku on the field, Um, so keeping things focused in more conventional warfare meant Xeon had a major advantage. And with plans already sort of being set up to invade Earth, longer war gives Xeon more time to actually get to the material resources that they're going to need, which we've already started seeing with Makuve and the mine. Um, One of the show opening narrations talked about how Xeon's success was really because they were better prepared. They came in with a huge advantage. And while the Federation had access to more materials, Xeon really had the momentum off the bat. They really didn't want to give up that momentum. We'll dive into this in a little bit more depth in a minute, but it's definitely a major part of the of why the treaty treaty happened. The sources don't always provide the same stipulations for the treaty, but the things that are constant are the weapons prohibitions, treatment of prisoners, and the protection for neutral states, as well as, to a lesser extent, the protection of the helium fleets. Um, But again, we aren't there yet, and Tom says no spoilers. (laughs) I thought it was interesting that there isn't much additional comment, color, or information on the treatment of of prisoners, other than that it's governed by the treaty. And I get the sense that sort of, they don't talk about it much and are just relying on the audience's assumptions about what a prisoner of war treatment plan program requirement should be. 
Presumably things like not torturing people. Yeah, yeah. Well, for certain values of torture. In the novel, I, th- I think it's the novel, um, things are blurred a little bit. They do say that they can be forced to, to work, though. So you can't just put them into, into, a, into a labor camp, which... Oh. Well, that's extremely Japanese. Mm-hmm. Forced labor was very common and killed a lot of POWs, mm-hmm. um, particularly in Russia and in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I get the sense in that scene that when Kozin is saying you should know how to treat an officer, he's talking about unspoken rules about how officers treat each other, not explicitly the the rules right, about not, how prisoners are treated. Not the minimum expectations of the Antarctic Treaty. Right. Sort of a an honor among gentlemen kind of vibe. Right. Which sort of highlights Bright's youth comparatively when he's like, I've read the treaty. I know what to do. And some of the sort of aristocratic focus of Zion. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then I think the Antarctic Treaty is one of those story elements of Gundam that's going to be revisited at least once or twice more in different shows. Information that comes later is sometimes contradictory to what we get in the sort of more contemporary information that Gundam officials attributes to Tomino. But it's a topic that should be revisited again when we get to Zeta, The Origin, Gundam 0080, and Gundam 0083. Last thing that I'm going to say is that researching the Antarctic Treaty was a little bit trickier than I expected. I did not think that there was going to be an actual Antarctic treaty, but but there is. There is a real world Antarctic treaty. What does it say? So it was drafted in 59 um, and it went into effect in 61. So it's sort of in the time frame of things that could could have been in people's consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, Antarctic Treaty covers, lo and behold, surprise, shock, Antarctica, and how how the international community is supposed to sort of steward and take care of the continent that is the only continent where there aren't humans natively. So it's mostly focused on scientific research and stewardship of the continent. Um, but I think there are actually some provisions that might have influenced Tomina's decision to name his Antarctic Treaty after it. Um, specifically, the first article prohibits all military activity on Antarctica mm-hmm. to keep the continent neutral. Article Mm -hmm. 4 maintains absolute neutrality on the claims of the member nations to the continent. So even though the US and Norway say we own this part, the treaty binds everyone to say, yeah, sure, whatever you can say that, but we're not acknowledging that, which is interesting. (laughs) And Article 5, I think most notably, prohibits the use of nuclear weapons or the disposal of nuclear waste on Antarctica. So it's pretty different from Gundam's Antarctic Treaty. (laughs) <laughs> but there's a couple of sort of, I guess, rhymes that, that talks a lot about nukes and it and it focuses a lot on on neutrality. Mm. Well, and who knows what Antarctica is like in Universal Century 0079. Yeah. You won't know until you watch the origin. <laughs> Bazookas, how do they work? (laughs) Bazookas were created to solve a rather important problem. As tank armor improved, you needed better explosives to penetrate it. As you created stronger explosives, suddenly no human could throw a grenade far enough to be safe from the blast radius. And so propelled grenades were born. Bazooka is the common name for a man-portable, recoilless, anti-tank rocket. (laughs) How did they get the name Bazooka? Uh, There is a vague resemblance to a musical instrument called a bazooka, (laughs) which was popularized by a 1930s U.S. comedian, Bob Burns. I will post a photo in the show notes. This is excellent. I have seen the photo, and yes, I would agree it is a vague resemblance. (laughs) Do you know if it has any relation to the kazoo? I know it was meant to sound funny, so sure. (laughs) Okay. The reasons not to fire a bazooka in a closed space are twofold. Firstly, the one I touched on already. You get caught in the blast radius. 
Secondly, all recoilless rocket launchers have what is called a backblast area, a cone-shaped space where hot gases are expelled when the weapon is fired. These gases can cause burns and overpressure injuries, which what, is to what say- What is an overpressure yeah. injury? Uh, the best explanation I can think of is when someone gets caught in the radius of an explosion and they get horrible internal injuries because of the pressure of the explosion. It's not that they get hit with anything or shrapneled or anything like that. It's just that they get hit with air. They get hit with the rapidly expanding air <laughs> and that causes massive internal damage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in particular, in confined spaces, the blast can deflect back on the operator. So... Sela might not have been inside the cone, but in a five foot wide hallway, the the blast would have bounced off of the wall behind her and still hit her. Oh. Yeah, Sela and what's his face <laughs> would have had severe organ damage and horrifying burns. Yeah, I found the U.S. operating manual for one of these bazookas from World War II, and you would need at least twenty feet of clearance behind one of these when you fired it to avoid serious risk of injury to the operator. The German version, the Panzerfaust, which was even more powerful, had an even longer backblast danger zone. For those, you needed 10 meters of clearance. Yeah, when I was researching this, they mentioned many of these pieces of equipment are made to be fired you know, from an emplacement, from a foxhole, but you had to have enough room behind you and that space couldn't have any people in it. Oh. Yeah, in the manual, like every page has an instruction for the person loading the bazooka because it was a two-person job. Right. One person loaded, one person fired. Every page has an instruction for the loader. Do not stand behind <laughs> the bazooka. Do not stand directly where the rear opening of the bazooka oh, is. At no point, even when you think the bazooka is unloaded, <laughs> should you ever be standing behind the bazooka. Yep, sounds about right. That blast would not have blasted Cozen out the door. That would have just eviscerated uh, both of them. I think it could have. Have it could I mean if it's if it's made like an anti tank you know explosive which is the closest comparison we have it would have destroyed the door and the change in pressure because he's in an airlock could have and the explosion itself could have knocked Kozen through the open door of the airlock yeah but it sounds like the options here are three dead people or two dead people <laughs> right. right. <laughs> As opposed to maybe no dead people. <laughs> With a margin of error of Kozen. Oh. Sela is so right and simultaneously so wrong, which is like, don't feel bad. It could have been us. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been us. We touched on this briefly when we were talking about the Antarctic Treaty, but one of Zeon's primary strategic goals in occupying the Earth was to get access to the material resources after they'd done all their preparation and possibly consumed most of their resources. Uh, but they needed access to these resources to support the ongoing war effort and their production. And this is another place that we get we get parallels between the Axis powers uh, in, in the Second World War and Xeon. If you look at production of war resources, weapons, raw material, oil, oil-based products, running up to and during the Second World War, across pretty much every category, you see a trend of Germany and Japan producing significantly more than the countries that would become the Allies did up until about 1940. And after that, the Allies quickly overtook them in production. We get the idea that Xeon followed a similar pattern. Most of the notable battles that we hear about in Gundam happened during the first month in the war. The Battle of Loom, for example, which is where Shar got his nom de guerre red comet, happened during this first month. 
Sean and I had a whole discussion about whether that was a spoiler or not. <laughs> I was right. And we established that the Battle of Loom does get mentioned back in episode two when Char first makes his appearance and the dying Captain Palo goes, the Red Comet. Rest in peace, Captain Palo. He, he, he destroyed five of our battleships at the Battle of Loom. And then he dies. I like your Captain. Several episodes later. I like your Captain Palo voice. Yep. I feel like Captain Palo should make guest appearances on the show, Tom. Only in ghost form. <laughs> Coming back to give Bright advice on how to be a good captain. Yeah. Um, so we know that Xeon had had quite a few mobile suits at the beginning of the war, so they clearly had been ramping up production early on. They mass produced the Zaku 2 after a more limited run of the Zaku 1, which is the mobile suit that the Xeon Supply Corps Commander Gadam pilots in the episode Vote to Attack. Space Walrus. Spa- yes. I miss Space Walrus. He was cool. He was a good, he had a good mustache. Great mustache. Better mustache than Ramba Rall, but only by a little bit. Mm, yeah. Back off Rall tie. <laughs> if, if Rall, if Roomba Rall keeps growing his mustache out, someday he might be a space walrus too. But he didn't have a hamon. <laughs> so tasty. maybe he had some hamon back at home. Uh, jokes. I am withholding <laughs> from making. Um, yeah. So we know that Xeon had had been preparing for the war for a while, um, and they dominated battlefields early on with the mass-produced uh, mobile suits. We also see Xeon take particular interest in material resources on Earth. Makuve's occupation of the mine is one example, regardless of whatever nefarious schemes that he keeps hinting at before he flicks his vase. <laughs> well, and they—he needs a mustache to twirl. Come on, he does need a mustache. His would be a very skinny oh, mustache. It would be so good. It'd be very Dali. Uh, yeah, but curly, obviously. Would it be purple blue like his hair? Probably. Yep. Mm. But I was just thinking, he keeps saying, oh, no one must find out the mine's true purpose. I know. And in the attack on the mine, which seems like an accident, like they yeah. just wind up too close to it and they don't know it's there. And then the mine attacks them. <laughs> the officers in the mine itself are like, why are they attacking us? We're not strategically important. Foreshadowing. Yeah, so both Axis powers planned their war strategies around seizing access to the raw materials that they lacked. For Germany, this meant getting to the oil fields in Baku, which are in the Caucasian mountains as part of Operation Edelweiss. Uh, The famous attack on Stalingrad in 1942, for instance, was part of a greater plan to occupy the Caucasian mountains and secure access to Baku. The ultimate failure of this operation put further strains on the Wehrmacht. Hitler had expected this to be a success because the German government had already started issuing licenses to German companies to extract (laughs) oil from the Baku fields. Well, done Germany. The comparison of Xeon and Germany is not perfect. Uh, Xeon is already in control of much of the earth and Makuve is already in control of the mine, whereas the Nazis did not manage to take control of the Baku oil fields. It is interesting to note, though, that the Xeon war effort matches that of Germany's um, premeditated preparation and production, followed by a push to secure further resources to support continued production. I wrote that down because it was good. (laughs) Well, and Japan also desperately needed oil. Yeah. It's, it's cited as one of the reasons that Japan decided to, to declare mm-hmm. war on the U.S. Mm-hmm. They were trying to negotiate to get U.S. sanctions on Japan lifted. And when that didn't happen, that's part of what made them decide to attack Pearl Harbor. And it's a big part of why they early on invaded places like Indonesia, mm-hmm. which has a vast amount of natural gas. The attack on Pearl Harbor was meant to basically prevent the U.S. fleet from being able to interfere with Japan's efforts to conquer oil-producing islands in the South Pacific. And And Southeast Asia. Yeah, and Southeast Asia, and then be able to transport those by sea back to Japan for production. And it was losing that naval superiority, losing those resources, that really was the final nail in the coffin for the Japanese war effort. Next time on episode 1.18, What Will You Do Now? An inadequacy of tarps. Whack a turret. Magnets, how do they work? 
The Gundam gets all hot and bothered. That poor shield. Step on me, Kaecilia-sama. And aw, he thinks he's helping. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Gundam Seed totally does a better job of doing the Char Sela and Char Amro relationships than Mobile Suit Gundam does. Whatever. At me. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Got cheese mouth. No, the dreaded cheese mouth. Yep. <laughs> Ooh. Yep. <laughs> not do that again. <laughs> For the audience, Tom just tried to kill the microphone and the computer all at the same time. I've decided to give up the podcast. <laughs> no. And I'm taking, I'm taking everything with me. Like a small child throwing everything out of his pram. <laughs> pram. I'm sorry. I live in the UK. I don't think anyone should let him anywhere near the gun. Nope. <laughs> what if I fire the Gundam bazooka in this hallway? I don't know about Job. He seems fine, but don't let Sunmalo near, near weapons, period. Maybe, or people, or anything. Find some nice isolated job for him to do. Also, I called it a Gundam bazooka. I know it's a hyper bazooka. Don't at me. Hyper bazooka? Really? Listen, bazooka is already a ridiculous name. <laughs> <laughs> He's been almost since he got. Sorry, I can't say. Nope, I no. can't.